Good morning, church. Good to see you. Uh, As Tim shared, uh, Sherry and I are indeed blessed to be connected to Rachel and Amos and Adam, Aaron, and Andrew. Thank you. And we're very grateful that they're part of Sacred Mission. Very glad for that. I've had breakfast a couple times with Tim at Sweet Oaks and had the deepest respect for him and the unique work that God is doing here in this church. I also have a very deep respect for Sweet Oaks biscuits and gravy. Reminds me of my mom's cooking down in Texas back in the day. So... Well, Sherry and I still smile when we think about the first time that Rachel introduced us to Amos Green. They'd been playing sand volleyball with some friends, and she brought him home afterwards. What was funny about the moment was that Amos had gotten some sand in his eye, which, of course, is not very funny in and of itself. But you should have seen the drama that unfolded before us. Amos was milking it for all it was worth, and then some. And Rachel gave him the care and attention that Florence Nightingale would have been proud of. Of course, Amos enjoyed every moment of it all, and they were married within 11 months. Well, if if you're married, perhaps you have your own version of this story. You meet this perfect creature, and you find yourself falling hopelessly in love with him or her. And love comes easy in those early days, doesn't it? But then we experience that this initial excitement must eventually give way to some hard work and effort. It's more than just a grain of sand in someone's eye. We realize that Mr. and Mrs. Perfect is anything but. And truth be told, we might find ourselves actually fighting for the marriage to simply survive. And it's at that moment that we have a choice. Are we going to to coast in the marriage, can't lower the bar, and hope to peacefully coexist with our significant other? Or we can lay hold of every resource that God provides and seek to love and respect our husband or wife in the way that we pledge to God that we would do when we were first married. To do everything we can do to help them be more like Jesus, even if it humbles us, even if it costs us greatly, even if it's beyond our own power and strength. This type of committed love for our brothers and sisters It's what Jesus calls his disciples to in John 13. As we continue on in our Christian lives, we too graduate from a newlywed type of love to a love that we can learn to express even in the midst of suffering. A kind of love that only God can grow in us. And that is my big point this morning. In a fallen world, Jesus calls us to supernaturally love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for saving us and giving us that first love for you. But Lord, we we confess that sometimes we find ourselves drifting from that early affection and zeal. 
And then our love for one another can grow lukewarm or cold. So Lord, help us this morning to be, yes, hearers and doers of your word. Help us to commit ourselves afresh to loving one another as Christ loved his disciples, even as we're being watched by a curious world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me to John 13, if you're not there already. And as you turn there, let me take just a moment to remind you of where we are in John's gospel. In chapters 13 through 16, it's called Jesus' Farewell Discourse. This section contains Jesus' final instructions to his followers before his arrest and crucifixion. And this body of teaching is unique to John's gospel. In other words, you won't find these red letters in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Well, in today's passage, there are three parts or sections. In verses 21 through 30, we see betrayal. Of course, the main character is Judas. In verses 31 through 35, we see the idea of suffering, of God being glorified and Jesus going to the cross. In verses 36 through 38, we see pride. Pride and denial in the person of Peter. So please read along with me as I read to you verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or they should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. My first point this morning is this. In a fallen world, we will feel the weight of betrayal. In verse 21, we see that Jesus felt the weight of betrayal. The apostle John records he was troubled in his spirit. And the Greek word for this phrase is terasso, which means to, to be stirred up, unsettled. And this word was used twice to describe what Jesus felt at Lazarus' tomb. B.B. Warfield stated that the dominant emotion that Jesus felt was righteous anger and rage towards death and toward him who had brought sin and death to mankind, Satan. Sherry and I were troubled in our spirits this past week. Uh, an 18-year-old young man whose family we know died of a drug overdose a little over a week ago. 
there's horrific brokenness in this family. Other children are rebelling against God. Honestly, I, I wanted to, to judge and blame the parents. But then God, he reminded me that the real enemy that I should be angry at is, is Satan, who seeks to steal, kill, and, and destroy. Yeah, but we were troubled. But why was Jesus troubled in his spirit here in John 13? What was he troubled by? Well, the text says that Jesus was troubled after saying these things. Jesus had just talked about the significance of his washing the disciples' feet and that someone would lift his heel against him. And this phrase refers to exposing the bottom of your foot to another, which in Middle East culture still today is a sign of personal contempt. In other words... Even though Jesus loved and served the 12 disciples humbly and perfectly, Judas would still choose to do the unthinkable, betray him, crush him. And and don't read over this text too quickly. There's no pain worse than relational pain. To have your heart rent by betrayal is devastating whether it's caused by adultery, divorce, or the duplicity of a friend or business partner. But consider this. Knowing the heart of our Lord, it is quite likely that Jesus was equally troubled for Judas's sake. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of their rejection of him and the destruction that would follow at the hand of Rome's army. Therefore, it's no stretch to imagine that because of Jesus' love for Judas, that he was distressed deeply by what his decisions would mean for his life and eternity. Jesus felt the weight of Judas' betrayal. And we see as the story unfolds in verse 22 that the disciples felt uncertainty at Jesus' announcement. They were clueless to who the betrayer would be which meant that Judas' outward behavior conformed to everybody else's. You could say that he presented well. And like the 11, we all had the potential of being conned by a skilled liar and deceiver. But what is truly tragic in this account is that Judas could have felt honored. Let me explain. You probably noticed that John the disciple whom Jesus loved, was at Jesus' right hand. And this, as you know, was a position of honor. Because of John's proximity, he was able to literally lean onto Jesus to ask him a question. Well, in a similar way, it's possible that Judas could have been seated at Jesus' left, which also would have been a place of honor. We know that he was at least close enough For Jesus, they hand him the piece of bread. In addition, for the host to dip a piece of bread in the common bowl and to hand it to someone was normally a sign of honor to the person who received it. This would be similar to us proposing a toast in someone's honor at a banquet today. And Jesus did this, of course, in the presence of all the disciples. But only John was 
close enough to hear Jesus say that his giving the morsel of bread would mark him as the betrayer. Therefore, as Ray Stedman pointed out, when Jesus gave this piece of bread to Judas, he was honoring him in the presence of the other disciples. But, but instead of humbly accepting this honor from Jesus and repenting, we see that Judas is intent on moving in the opposite direction. We see a frightening progression unfold in this chapter for Judas. In verse 2, we see that Satan puts it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Now here in verse 27, Satan enters him. He has reached the point of no return. After countless poor choices, misplaced expectations, and an unbridled love of money, he has put himself in a position to be taken captive by the devil to do his will. And don't miss the warning here for all of us. Anytime that, that we choose to sin, to live independently of God, we will not be able to freely receive the love and honor that Jesus' heart so earnestly desires to lavish upon us. And did you catch how this first section ends? It concludes with these ominous words, and it was night. Throughout his gospel, John makes it clear that the world desires to do its work at night, in the dark, so its evil deeds will not be seen. In a fallen world, then and now, we will feel the weight of betrayal. Let me read verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In this second section, we see our second point. In a fallen world, we can glorify God in our suffering. We see that first in verse 31. It says, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. What is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is saying that God would be glorified through the cross. With Judas, Judas excuse me, leaving to betray him, Jesus' imminent crucifixion had now been set into motion. But note also that God the Father will also glorify his Son. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, that is Jesus, in himself and glorify him at once. So both the Father and the Son took on a fallen world and the evil cosmic forces behind it. And in so doing, they magnify God's name and fame. When Jesus willingly hung on a tree to bear the curse for man's sin and was raised from the dead on the third day. 
Now we get to the heart of the passage in the next two verses. Verses that you're probably well familiar with. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We see here that we are to love one another as Jesus loved the twelve. In the midst of some really hard things that Jesus had shared, Judas' betrayal and his own impending death, Jesus surprisingly gives a directive. He gives a command, a commandment that if fully understood and implied would help the disciples better navigate their suffering. A command to love. To look outside of themselves, outside of their pain and confusion. And Jesus said that this was a new commandment. The command to, to love one another was not new. I mean, no, Moses stated in Leviticus 19:18 that the Israelites were to love their neighbor as themselves. The newness was found in Jesus' next phrase. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. As Jesus did in his moral teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he once again raises the bar for his followers. So how did Jesus love in a new and greater way? How did his ethic of love totally raise the standard for the Jews of his day and for all people in all times? I believe from our context, we see two ways that Jesus loved his disciples at a level that the world had never seen. As we look at each example, I'll challenge us to some specific application. Are you ready? First of all, We humbly serve others, including those who will fail us. We see that with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Jesus, as the divine Son of Man, was not above fixing breakfast, touching lepers, or holding children in his lap as he sought to serve others. And as he bent over and washed the grimy feet of the twelve, He knew full well that each one of them would soon sin grievously against him. Betrayal, denial, abandonment. Well, what might Christ-like service look like for us? Well, let's begin with our heart. Listen to this quote by Maxie Dunham. He wrote, the way most of us serve keeps us in control. We choose whom? When, where, and how we'll serve. We stay in charge. But Jesus is calling for something else. He is calling us to be servants. When we make this choice, we give up the right to be in charge. Friends, let's not just serve. Let's be servants. It begins with our heart. Well, how about our, our, our mindset, mindset our, our attitude? Let me ask you this. What do you see, you see when you walk into a room filled with people? I, I know what my wife Sherry sees. Her eyes quickly scan the room to see what needs to be done. Does food need to be served? Does something need to be cleaned? Is there someone new or someone by themselves who needs to be talked to? We have a choice. 
Are we looking to meet the needs of others or do we make social interactions mostly about ourselves? If we're not careful, our default can become moving towards the people who make us laugh or talk about our favorite topics. Our mindset must be others-centered. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the second way that Jesus deepened our understanding and practice of love was by living sacrificially for the good of others. Jesus had just told his disciples that God is about to be glorified in him, that he's about to go somewhere that they cannot come. And Jesus is referring to going to the cross. So when Jesus says that he's given a new commandment, that disciples are to love others as he has loved them, he has the cross in view. Like Jesus, we're called to take up our crosses and to love one another sacrificially. So how can this be played out at sacred mission? Well, let me put it this way. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Your reputation for costly love precedes you. For example, after derecho, Rachel and Amos were in a tough spot. A lot of mature trees and a lot of damage. And no one wants a wedding venue that looks like it's been through a war zone. It was a joy for Sherry and I that, that Saturday morning to come and to see so many of you there helping. Many hands and pickup trucks with big chains made for some light work. And I've heard other examples as well of how this church body cares well for one another. Jerry Bridges rightly said in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, that love is costly. To forgive in love costs us our sense of justice. To serve in love costs us our time. And to share in love costs us our money. And sometimes, according to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, the cost of loving one another means that we are patient, that we defer to another, that we are forbearing, and that we endure greatly. It costs us. And we know from the example of Jesus, the early church, and even the persecuted church today, that love for Christ and his followers may even cost us our life. And verse 35 tells us what happens when we love one another in the same way that Jesus loved his disciples. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You see, the church can't help but notice when the church loves its own well. You see, if we love one another radically, like Jesus did, people will make the connection between us and our Savior. They'll say things like, man, they're a little bit weird, but those Christians over at Sacred Mission sure do care for each other. And you know, the more that they hang out with us and, and watch our relationships with one another, the more they'll realize that it's Jesus in us that makes us different, that makes us truly loving. And it's this supernatural, self-giving love that is our mark in the world, our beauty mark. 
And when we have genuine friendships with people in the world, we invite them into our homes, don't we? We invite them to our parties, to our small groups. Then they get to meet our believing friends and witness Christ's supernatural love among us. So Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another in a radical way, even as he was facing the cross and feeling the weight of betrayal. In this fallen world, undoubtedly many of you are suffering in some way right now. It could simply be the, the January doldrums, a troubling report from your doctor, or a disintegrating relationship. Whatever it might be, glorify God in your suffering. Don't withdraw into yourself, but, but love your brothers and sisters well, and the world will take note. Now we see this story shift to Peter and his denial. Beginning in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And here we see our third and final point. In a fallen world, my friends, beware of spiritual overconfidence. You know, Peter must sense that, that Jesus is going on a dangerous mission. And with his typical self-confidence and brashness, says, I want in. I want a piece of that. I will lay down my life for you. But as Jesus had said earlier to the leaven, Peter cannot follow Jesus now. And why is that? It's because Jesus is going to the cross. John Piper's helpful in pointing out two reasons why Peter and the other disciples could not follow Jesus there. Peter and his fellow disciples couldn't follow because they were morally unable to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. They were not enough like Jesus yet. And it wasn't just Peter who failed, right? They all crumbled. They were not spiritually mature enough to make the sacrifices necessary to follow a crucified Messiah. They also needed a greater power than their own willpower. They needed the Holy Spirit. And of course, they could not follow Jesus to the cross because he was going there to die for the sins of the world to die for your sins and for mine. Only he, only Jesus was morally able, the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, who would take away the sins of the world. But let's examine more carefully Peter's overconfidence and denial. Two of the more helpful ways we can study our Bibles is to use cross-references or do a harmony study of the Gospels. So if you look at Matthew's account of this story, you'll see these additional words from Peter to Christ. He said, though they, the other disciples, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Luke records in his account of this night that the disciples 
argued among themselves as to who was the greatest. The disciples, even after three years of walking with Jesus, were still full of pride, unhealthy competition, selfish ambition. No wonder Jesus needed to model humble servanthood for them by washing their feet that night. And even the significance of that act was lost upon them until later. So Jesus is left with no choice but to address Peter's misplaced confidence and tell him that he's going to deny him three times. Those of us who followed Christ for any period of time have experienced this type of humbling, haven't we? This is not foreign to us. We think we know more than we really do, or that we've moved past a besetting sin when we really haven't. I know in my case, twice I thought I was ready for a certain ministry position, but painfully discovered that I simply thought too highly of myself. Self-confidence is it's never a good fit for the Christ follower. In a different context, Paul would later warn the proud Corinthians with these words. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Peter said that he would lay down his life for Jesus. He needed Jesus to lay down his life for him. In a fallen world, beware of spiritual overconfidence. Well, in closing, I want to return to our big point. In a fallen world, Jesus calls us to supernaturally love one another. But how can we do that? Well, imperfect people loving other imperfect people with great humility and sacrifice, like Jesus did, if we're honest with each other, that goal seems doomed before we even begin. Because it's supernatural to love other people like that, we desperately need God's help. It's beyond what we can naturally do on our own. So how can we do that? Two concluding thoughts. We find our identity in Christ's love for us. You see, if we attempt to find our identity and value in our own efforts and gifts, as Peter did, things will not turn out well for us either. Instead, we must learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. And what I mean by that, church, is that we're not only saved by grace, but we are to live the Christian life by grace too. Grace empowers us, Titus 2.12. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just regenerate us, causing us to be born again, but he empowers us to live a life for Christian life and ministry, to do that well. So when we preach the gospel to ourselves as believers, we regularly remind ourselves that God does not accept us because of anything we do. How many quiet times we have each week, how our kids are doing spiritually, or if our ministry is thriving or not. No. He delights in us and calls us the apple of his eye simply because we are his sons and daughters. And if we're going to stay the course with joy in seeking to love others like Jesus did, we must gladly remember that we are all 
more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, but more loved and welcomed than we ever dared hope. As Tim Keller put it so well. And this confidence in God's, in Christ's effective work for us will lead to a life that's marked by gratitude. He who has forgiven much, loves much. If we would love like Jesus loved, we will learn to find our identity in Christ's love for us. And in addition, we will hold on to God's big story. I'm sure you felt this. Today's passage in John was pretty dark, wasn't it? It was hard. I mean, betrayal that leads to great suffering, including Judas's suicide shortly following. Christ facing an uncompromising Roman cross and the wrath of his father. And Jesus' number one disciple is about to deny his Lord three times. I mean, you may not want to read this to your kids at bedtime. This is hard. But there's more to the story. God's big story, his meta-narrative that began in Genesis 1 does not end with John 13. History did not end in the upper room or even on Calvary. For Jesus and all of his followers, God's story of creation, fall, and redemption is now moving towards Revelation 22, towards consummation. Then God will make all things new, and people from every tribe, language, people, and nation will reign with and serve and worship the Lamb. Let's remember that we're a part of God's big story, which means that right now, individually or as a family, if you're living in a difficult chapter, so to speak, a difficult verse, it won't last forever. Let's live out our identity in Christ and his love for us. And in this fallen world, let's remember that Jesus calls us and empowers us to supernaturally love one another. And a watching world will know that we are his disciples. Let's pray. Father, if there is someone listening this morning who has witnessed the love that sacred mission has for one another and sees it for what it is, a supernatural work that you're doing in and through them, Lord, I pray that they would say in their heart, I want that, and pursue and meet Jesus. Father, thank you for making this rural church a part of your story. Thank you for calling these people and others still yet to come to this unique place in this unique time. Continue to help them love one another well. In Jesus' name, amen.